I know many of you have heard this story before, uh, but I think it bears on what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and since I never get um, bored of hearing myself tell the same stories over and over, I thought I'd share. Um, a little over 31 years ago, I was in college uh, having a really rough semester um, that ultimately culminated in God grabbing a hold of my life. Um, and at which point I swore off women forever um, for about two weeks. Uh, and, uh, and once I was ready to get realistic with myself, I admitted to my best friend and roommate at the time that, uh, that maybe I was a bit hasty in swearing off the female gender forever. Um, I told him that I couldn't imagine, even at the ripe old age of 19, that I was ready to face my life completely alone. So um, for the first time in my life, I decided that I wanted to be a little bit more selective about who I was going to date. Um, honestly, up to that point, my standards were um, for women was, um, is she hot? <laughs> that was pretty much as, as deep as I went. Um, I mean, I, I always assumed that once we started dating, if, if there were uh, issues and problems that showed up, um, we could, I could always break up with a troublemaker and start over. But at the end of the day, you know, hot trumped most small issues. Uh, so based on what God was doing in my life at 19, I, de- I decided that I needed standards. And, uh, and really the only real standard that I had was, uh, at least in my mind, was that I wanted a woman who had a relationship with God and was actively seeking and pursuing a deeper relationship with Him. Um, but as I was trying to communicate this desire to my roommate, he asked this deeply searching question. What are you looking for in a woman? And uh, believe it or not, I had never contemplated that question before. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I had never started by asking that question. I was basically treated dating, dating like fishing. You just kind of throw the bait out and see what you catch. You know, that was about it. And uh, only at least in fishing, you, you select the bait based on the kind of fish you're trying to catch. But I was basically just looking at who was available and, and, uh, and if she was hot, perfect. Um, so when my roommate asked me what I was looking for, it was a, a genuinely deep question to me. And so I had no idea. Um, and so I did find that once I focused on it, things started coming up in my mind. I started imagining a future and trying to see, um, you know, in my imagination what that might look like with another human involved in it. Uh, and and, uh, and I started thinking, started thinking about values and, and things that were important to me and things that I wanted to be important to the person I'd wind up with, things I thought I could and couldn't work with. And uh, so we grabbed a big yellow legal notepad and, and started making a list. And I filled basically like a page and a half of things that I wanted. It was pretty ridiculous, like some of the things. Um, my roommate says, when we're done, I know the girl. And by the end of the night, I'd had a two-hour conversation with Esther on the phone back when long distance cost money and it was like, it cost a four, it, I just dated myself. I mean, remember when long distance calls cost a lot of money. Yeah, it was an expensive phone call. Um, and we had set up our first date and the rest, as they say, is history. And for the record, after we've been dating for a while, I actually gave Esther the list and she kept it for a long time until a mouse got into like her thing and chewed it all up. But, um, but it's amazing what you see when you're looking for it. Let me ask you a question. How, how many people can tell me this morning uh, exactly how many red cars you passed on the way to church? Anyone? If you could, I'm assuming you'd, you'd know like where you fall on the spectrum, right? Um, but, uh, 
But if I told you next Sunday, and I sent out a reminder before church with plenty of time, I will give you $100 for every red car you pass on the way to church. How many of you think you might see some red cars? Yeah, you'd see some red cars. Um, Now, it's not because there's more red cars, right? It's not because you actually passed more red cars. It's because you were looking for red cars. You only see what you look for. We have this tendency to think that we're just like recording machines and we see everything there is to see. That's just not true. You see what you look for. This is actually a concept we've been working on with our kids personally a lot lately and we've been working on with youth group a little bit. Um, because this can, uh, can actually change your life a lot. Several different schools of thought have kind of grabbed onto this simple concept and kind of made it spiritual and weird. Um, but the, the simple idea is that you see what you look for. Um, it's, it's just how our human attention works. So if you wake up and you look for good things to happen to you, um, you can't make good things happen to you. Like that's not how it works. Uh, you, you can't just create the good day that wasn't already there. But, just like red cars, good things happen to us all the time. Good thing there's beauty all over the place. There's grace and majesty all over the place. But you only see it if you're looking for it. There's a million things we could be thankful for that we only see when we're looking for them. And when you aren't looking for them because you are busy or distracted or, God forbid, you're convinced that nothing but bad is going to happen to you, you'll miss all the amazing things that just bombard all of us every day. And when you wake up and decide that, that you're going to catch those good things, and, and you know what, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm not going to let a single good thing pass me by today. I want to notice all of them. It's like red car, red car, red car, red car. And you find a million things to be grateful for. And you go to bed feeling like, man, that was a great day. What a great day. Look at all the amazing things. And likewise, if you convince yourself that life is hard and nothing but bad stuff ever happens to you, and the world is an awful place and it's all just too much, and you, you, you don't create bad things out of that attitude, you don't make a bad day when there wasn't one, but if you're looking for bad and you're ready to total all the awful things that happen to us on a given day, you'll find them. At the end of the day, you'll have a list because bad things happen to all of us. We live in a broken, fallen world. And if that's what you're looking for, that's what you'll see. You'll see mostly bad. And here's the deal. I'm not suggesting that the day changes in any way. The day is what it is. And some days are automatically better days and other days are automatically horrible days. That happens. But the idea that we just roll through our days a perfect observational machine and at the end of the day we can accurately tally whether it was a good day or a bad day is just not true. Because you see what you look for. And the person who, who wakes up in the morning looking for red cars will see more red cars. And the person looking for blue cars is going to see more blue cars. Even if the exact same amount of good and bad happens to both of them, the one looking for good will be more grateful more, more, more uh, appreciative of their day. You see what you look for. Well, the simple concept can have huge implications on our spiritual lives, right? And that's what I hope to unpack this morning. This is the second week of this year's Saint series, where we basically just followed the pattern set out in, uh, in Hebrews 11, that the writer of the Hebrews makes this long list of people um, who had lived the life of faith before them and kind of blazed the trail. And said, man, this person did this with their faith, and that person did that with their faith, and this person did this with their faith. And we read it last week. The whole chapter 11 of Hebrews is just this list of people 
who had kind of paved the way of faith. And the writer of Hebrews concludes by saying, since we're part of such a grand story, surrounded by so many great characters of faith, let us not only keep the story rolling, but blaze a trail for the next generation. Let's be those kind of people that do amazing stuff with our faith. So, so it's not that we study these people to say they're really cool and we should honor them in some way. No, we study them to say that was awesome. Now it's our turn to chase Jesus like that. Now it's our turn to pick up that mantle and, and run with it. Well, this year our saints are a little different. We're calling this, uh, this year's series Key Changes because um, we're digging into all hymn writers, um, people who wrote, uh, used their art and their music um, to, to share their faith and how they impacted the world um, with their lives and their art. So last week we learned about William Batchelder Bradbury, um, who was this really ambitious and prideful singer who only wanted two things in life, to be famous and to have a great impact on the world for Jesus. Um, Bradbury thought he knew how that would happen. Uh, but as he taught music to children, almost as like a filler job as he was waiting to become famous, um, he found both a need and, uh, and something that he absolutely loved to do. And in the end, he wound up fulfilling both of his desires because um, though he never stood on a stage the way he wanted to, he wrote songs that are still regularly sung today, um, including On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand and Just As I Am, which accompanied over two million souls into salvation at Billy Graham Crusades. And Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, which has put countless kids to bed at night. Um, so William Batchelder did both. He st- his music is still sung and still played, and he made an impact for Jesus. Well, this morning we're studying a saint um, that I have to confess uh, we don't know a ton about. Um, his name pops up all the time in our Bibles, but this actual, uh, the actual narrative around him is just hinted at. So we're going to pull some of that out and see if we can kind of weave together um, something about who this guy was. Um, and hopefully we can see his impact um, as a saint, um, the impact that he had on Israel for one, but also for all of us, uh, because he lived 3,000 years ago. Um, this saint is Asaph. Um, obviously, we have no idea what Asaph actually looked like, but if you Google Asaph, this picture pops up. So if Google says that's what he looked like, that's obviously what he looked like. Um, we can trust that, because it's Google. Asaph is, uh, is an interesting person, because he wrote... More of the Bible than Peter, James, Jude, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Joel, Malachi, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Haggai, or Obadiah. He wrote a lot of the Bible. And yet, we know very little about his life. Asaph really uh, first shows up as just a list of a whole bunch of names at, at, at a really big event in Israel's history. Once King David became king of God's people and, and he conquered Jebus, um, this walled city, this great walled city, and he renamed it Jerusalem. Um, he moved into that walled city and he immediately wanted to bring the tabernacle of God to the city. He wanted the presence of God to have uh, a central place where everybody could come and worship together. Um, David got in in a little bit of a hurry and he just kind of tossed the ark in the bed of his truck and uh, and tried to bring it in and, and it cost a man his life. Um, someone died in the process. So, on the day that we meet Asaph is the second try. Um, it's, uh, and we only meet him for a half a second. But David had consulted the Levites um, on, on how the ark was supposed to be moved. And now he's doing it right. 
So the scene is this long progression of, of uh, people where a group of men have the ark on poles on their shoulders and they're walking um, all the way from Obed-Edom's house, wherever that was, to Jerusalem. And they sacrifice animals every six steps. You guys ever been to like a church service, a worship service that made you really uncomfortable? Like some people are like, you get in there and you're just like, this is, this is weird. Imagine this one. Like, how many of us are comfortable? Like every six steps an animal gets killed and there's just a long line of dead animals and blood everywhere. And you're like, I want to go back to that church that made me uncomfortable last time. This is weird. Um, yeah, so, I don't know why I put that in there. But, um, but there's this long, there's this long line, animals being sacrificed. There's a full choir of singers and, and an orchestra of musicians. And they're all following the procession like a marching band. And people, including King David, are dancing and singing and jumping up and down. It's a huge event. Um, a lot of people. And here's how it reads. It says, so the priests and the Levites purified themselves in order to bring the, bring the ark of the Lord to the, uh, the God of Israel to Jerusalem. Then the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders uh, uh, with its carrying poles, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. David also ordered the Levite leaders to appoint a choir of Levites who were singers and musicians to sing joyful songs to the accompaniment of harps and lyres and cymbals. So the Levites appointed Haman, um, uh, son of Joel, along with his uh, fellow Levites, Asaph, son of Berechiah, and Ethan, son of Cushiah, um, from the clan of Merari. Um, so, so at this point, David just tells the Levites, kind of in general, to choose from among themselves um, some people to lead the worship on that, on that special day. So he tells the Levites, you know, you pick, find me a few guys to lead worship. And, uh, and the Levites showed Heman, Asaph, and Ethan uh, to lead and, and chose choirs to assist and all things. So I'm assuming these are the guys on microphones. Like these are the guys right up front um, leading worship. And remember, um, this is a pretty stressful gig because the last time they tried this, someone died. Um, so this is kind of an emotional environment. And uh, so being chosen to be in the top three might have been a little bit spooky, uh, but also a huge honor, like a huge deal that your people um, kind of picked you. And spoiler alert, they did get the ark back to Jerusalem, and David set up the old tent that Moses had built in the wilderness in Jerusalem. The tabernacle now has kind of a permanent home um, until the temple was built. So the ark of the covenant is now in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is in a big walled city. And people can come and worship God anytime. And now the house of God kind of had an established place where people can visit and worship. It needed to be officially dedicated. So David calls all of Israel to come to Jerusalem. And they all come and gather in Jerusalem for the dedication of the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Here's how it reads. They brought the ark of God and placed it inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. When they had finished uh, his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he gave every man and woman in Israel a loaf of bread and a cake of dates. It's like visiting Dale's house. Um, and a cake of raisins. You don't leave without food. Like, it's just how it happens. Um, David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord to invoke his blessing and give thanks and praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. Uh, so now Asaph has kind of moved from the top three um, chosen by his own people to the number one guy. He is the worship leader um, in Jerusalem right now. And at this time he was, he was uh, chosen by the king, which is kind of a, a, a huge honor. So 
Asaph, at this time, when the Levites are basically moving from a useless tribe, because up until this point, the Levites didn't do much. Like, they were called to, to kind of be the people that oversaw the worship, but um, because the, the tabernacle wasn't set up, they weren't really doing much. So then now they all of a sudden have real purpose. They've, they've kind of found this real calling, and, uh, and in this supercharged environment, something about Asaph stood out. Uh, to everyone, um, for him to get kind of chosen, something in the in the in the parade it seems made Asaph catch uh, David's eye, and David said, "You're going to be our worship leader." So went from being chosen among his leaders into the top three to arguably the biggest day in Israel's history, at least in his lifetime. He gets picked to be the guy to lead worship as they dedicated the temple and its new home. So side note, this is kind of a um, uh, not what we're talking about today, but it's something I think we need to take two quick kind of bunny trail points. Um, first, pay attention um, when you get affirmation about something. When, when someone like, tells you that you stand out at something, don't brush that off. Like, listen to that. That's important. Um, oftentimes, these moments that we figure out what our gifts are, when someone says, hey, you're good at this. Um, those mean something. Because our gifts can sometimes seem ordinary to us because they can come kind of naturally and we might just assume that it's not that big a deal. Anybody could do it. I barely even try when I do it. And blah, blah, blah. And so when someone says, hey, this is not normal. Like, you're good at this. Uh, listen to that. Pay attention to that. If you're getting constantly affirmed about something you do, stop and reflect um, because that might mean something. Um, the, the second thing I want to mention is that we need to affirm each other's gifts more. Um, we need to, the other side of that is don't take for granted that people know when they're good at things. Tell them, let them know, like, you're, you're good at this. Like, this is, um, uh, if someone's repeatedly kind, tell them that that's not normal in this world to be kind like that all the time. Let them know your kindness means something. Like, it's a, it stands out that you are, that you are always nice like that. Um, if someone repeatedly steps up um, in difficult situations, tell them they're a good leader. And like, not everybody steps up. A lot of people shrink back in this moment. It's it's a little weird and very cool that you do, and make it awkward if you have to. Like, we need to get in each other's faces a little bit and say you're good at this, um, uh, because the it's it's a sad scenario for someone to come and and be good at something and you go home thinking about how amazing they were. And, uh, and them go home and not have a clue. Like, because to them it's just normal. So it's important that we affirm each other. When I first started kind of following Jesus and studying the Bible, um, I had people in my life constantly telling me what I was gifted for. Like, constantly. And, uh, and to be honest, they were also pretty honest about the stuff that was not in my wheelhouse. Um, they let me know those things too. But, um, but when I was asking a million Bible questions, because I genuinely wanted to know, like I wasn't, Challenging. I was just like, like, well, what is this? What is that? Where'd that come from? And show me this verse. And I would ask a million questions. Um, uh, my mentor, Butch, you know, told me that most people don't ask questions like that when they really want the answers. He said most people who ask questions want to debate and they want to argue and they want to challenge. He, he told me that asking questions with a pure heart, just longing to learn, was unique and unusual. And he said, you'll probably be a Bible teacher someday. He's like, for you to ask questions like that isn't normal. And, and for me, I couldn't imagine a world where you didn't ask a million questions. Like, I want to know everything. I want to know anything. Like, and, and so it was to- I never would have dreamt that that was odd, that, that people didn't do that until someone said it. I've never had anyone ask me this many questions 
this is not normal. You're, you need to use this. Um, and so I was, uh, I was, I was prompted. I learned my gifts because someone else told me. And, and we need to do that for one another. When someone's, when someone is good at something, we need to let them know and affirm each other. Anyway, so we need to affirm each other's gifts. And when someone does, don't brush it off. Listen to it. And none of that's on topic. Here we go. Back to Asaph. Um, Asaph has clearly stood out and kind of risen to the top of his field as a worship leader. Um, he, we, we don't really hear much about uh, Asaph through the rest of David's story. Um, once the worship leader is kind of established in his new role, um, the storyteller of Chronicles shifts. Um, his focus to David and all his escapades and his family drama. And Asaph kind of fades into the background. Um, until the kind of next truly major event in Israel's history. David dies and kind of leaves his labor of love to his son, Solomon. David had wanted to build God a temple to replace the, the tent that the children of Israel had, had been worshiping in since the wilderness, like over 500 years now. David wanted a big grand house for God's presence, um, but wasn't permitted to, to do it, to build it. So he left his plans and a stockpile of building materials for Solomon. And Solomon took the job seriously. The new king um, built his dad's dream. And just as David um, held a dedication for the tabernacle when they brought it in Jerusalem, Solomon holds a dedication for the temple when it was officially um, opened. And so this is the dedication of the newly built temple. So Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries in the temple of God. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders and the ancestral families in Israel. And they uh, were to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the temple uh, from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the people of Israel assembled before the king um, at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early autumn. When all the elders of Israel arrived, the Levites picked up the ark. The priests and the Levites brought the ark along with a special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it. Um, there, before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, cattle, that there were none who could keep count. And the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. And the cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark uh, and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that the ends could be seen from the holy place, um, which is in front of the most holy place but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it on Mount Sinai where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left Egypt. Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests were present, had been purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. And the Levites, who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, and Jaduthan, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in the fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. So another little bunny trail. Um, you know what I love about Asaph? Is whenever you find the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, you find Asaph, which is pretty awesome. Um, wouldn't it be a great goal to have in your life that your name and the presence of God would just kind of go hand in hand? Um, we're basically... Whenever somebody thinks of you, they think of God. Um, you know, God, make us like Asaph, right? 
um, where the presence of God and open table community church kind of go together. Amen? Anyway, back to Asaph. David was 30 um, when he became king, and he died at a ripe old age. Um, so Asaph was probably in his teens or 20s um, when he kind of caught the king's eye with his ability to lead worship. And now the kingdom has passed to the next generation, and Asaph is still faithfully at his post, um, which is a cool deal. David reigned for 40 years, uh, and, and Solomon uh, took seven years to build the temple, and the whole time there's faithful Asaph um, uh, leading, worshiping God and leading others in the same. And, and which makes me want to say this. We've all heard like the testimonies um, of people who were really messed up and had done everything they could think of to offend God. And, and we all know people who were totally sinful when the grace of God grabbed them and, and brought them back. And there is no length that God's arm can't reach. And that's amazing um, to be to be drawn from that brokenness back to the Father's heart. Um, in fact, we'll be telling one of those stories in two weeks. But uh, if you're one of those people who don't have one of those stories... Um, if you were raised in a Christian home, found Jesus at a young age, and really never walked away, please hear me. Um, faithfulness is maybe the greatest miracle God can work in a human life. Um, I'm, I, I know none of us are sinless, but to walk faithfully with God year after year after year and stick by His side when everything falls apart and then everything is great again and then it falls apart again, and uh, to be an Asaph, and stand firm for God over the course of a lifetime is, is the greatest testimony you could ever have. Please don't ever feel like there's something missing in you because you don't have one of those radical conversion stories. Faithfulness is a miracle. It's a miracle, it's a, and, and we need to testify of that goodness. Um, Asaph was faithful. He, he's there when the ark is brought to Jerusalem. He's there every day worshiping faithfully. And he's still there when the ark is placed in the temple like 40 years later. Um, when it comes to like faithfully serving God, boring is beautiful. Like to show up day out, like year after year after year is, is a miracle. Don't ever, um, don't ever, uh, uh, fail to be grateful, um, for that miracle. And that's about all we hear of Asaph's life, uh, his actual life. Um, we, we, uh, we hit on some high points, um, especially the ones that kind of stood out to me. Um, and that's not even what we're here this week for. His kind of standout talent that got recognized and, and positioned him in the temple um, was impressive. His faithfulness over the years is inspiring. Um, but the part of Asaph that I want to stress this morning is his legacy. Um, 300 or so years uh, after moving the ark, um, after Asaph is long dead, uh, 14 kings after David, the king's name was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah wanted to cleanse the temple and restore proper worship to the God of Israel. He was super careful to follow all the temple protocols and, and uh, that David had written down for Solomon. He restored all the priests to their duties and, and chose new worship leaders just the way David had done. And they had tons of sacrifices just like they did in the old days. They even put on his red mega hat, you know, make Israel great again. Um, too far? Too far. Probably too far. Um, <laughs> just like the kings of old, Hezekiah held, <laughs> sorry, held a new celebration to dedicate this newly restored temple. And listen to what the Bible says about it. 
King Hezekiah then stationed the Levites at the temple of the Lord with cymbals, lyres, and harps. He obeyed all the commands that the Lord God had given to King David through, uh, through Gad, the king's seer, and, and the prophet Nathan. The Levites then took their position around the temple with the instruments of David. And the priests took their position with the trumpets. And Hezekiah ordered that the burnt offerings be placed on the altar, that the burnt offering was presented, songs of praise um, to the Lord had begun, accompanied by trumpets and the other instruments of David and uh, the former king of Israel. The entire assembly worshipped the Lord as singers sang and trumpets blew until all the burnt offerings were finished. Then the king and everyone with him bowed down in worship. King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the Psalms written by David and Asaph the seer. You might ask if there could ever be a greater honor for a musician than to be chosen by the king to lead worship for all of Israel in this kind of newly constructed tabernacle. Or to be chosen by the next king to lead worship for the newly constructed temple. I would argue that 300 years after your death, having a king say that no music could be played except for David's, maybe the greatest songwriter of all time, and your music would, would maybe be as high as you can go. Asaph's real legacy is the hymns that he wrote and left behind. Twelve songs were created by Asaph and placed in our Bibles for literally billions to read and sing. Asaph's art has impressed billions. And there's an interesting theme to Asaph's psalms. They read a lot like you're reading one of the prophets. Asaph sings about judgment and restoration. He laments over destruction and rejoices in God's unfailing and forgiving love. Oftentimes, the Asaph psalms are chalked up as as one of Asaph's descendants or, or something else because he wrote about things that didn't happen until after his death, especially some of the judgments that happened far after he lived. But after hearing Hezekiah refer to Asaph as the seer, it makes me wonder if maybe Asaph wasn't weaving prophecy into his art. If Asaph's writing was in the book of Ezekiel, we would just assume he was writing prophetic words because they sound like every other prophet. But because he doesn't have a prophetic book in his name and his writings are buried in the middle of a song book, we assume that someone else must have written them, even though they bear the name of Asaph. But somehow, 300 years after his death, Asaph had a reputation. It was no doubt given to him by people who had read his lyrics. But Asaph built a reputation as being someone with vision. He was a seer. I think this is beautiful because it kind of confirms a theory that I've had for years. I think artists maybe have the ability to reach more people and definitely more peaceably than thinkers and politicians and pastors. Here's my theory. I don't think there could have been a Reformation without Dante. Here's what I mean by that. In the late 1300s, Wycliffe had challenged the Catholic Church. He was burned at the stake. Huss picked up the mantle, tried to run with it, got twice as many followers as Wycliffe. He was burned at the stake. Luther picks it up, comes along, and, if, and, and he would have been burned too if, if Prince Frederick hadn't basically put him on house arrest to hide him from the Catholic Church. But it seemed like the time was right. Finally, Reformation happened, right? And Luther's generally credited with that. But a half a century before Wycliffe, when Wycliffe's just a baby, Dante writes a poem. And in that poem, he puts the Pope in the lowest, worst pit of hell and, 
and he challenges the church's theology and, and papal authority. And people are reading his poem and they chuckle secretly. And, and, and in a weird way, they find a voice for some of their doubts that they had struggled with. And the best part is, when he's confronted by the Catholic Church, he's like, it's a fiction, guys. It's just a story. It's just, it's just a funny you know, story to tell. Like, ah, it's satire. What if? Ha, ha, ha. I mean, who could actually believe and be swayed by a poem? Meanwhile, he's reshaping the imagination of the masses. And while all these other reformers are being killed, Dante's probably doing more prep to sway the people than anyone else. Art is powerful. And I think it's why Jesus came and told stories. They would ask him these deep theological questions. What say you? And he would go, you know, once upon a time, there was a man, and he would tell a story. Because I think art moves us in a way that, that prose doesn't. And the reason that I love the idea of a worship leader weaving prophecy into his music is because, like Dante, he gets to live a long life challenging hearts and minds. I don't know if you've ever read the prophets, but these guys uh, lived lives very close to Wycliffe and Huss. They did not live long, happy lives, like challenging the ideas of, of the people. And yet, there's this worship leader standing every day in the temple for over 40 years, 47 years, leading worship and challenging the thoughts of the people about what God's standards might be for His people. The prophets said all the the same things and they were despised and hated. Asaph puts it to music and everyone sings along. Which brings me to the prophetic power of music. On a survey, real quick, how many of you have ever sung words in worship, generally like about yourself and your own devotion and love for Jesus that you know aren't actually true? Anybody ever done that? Like read the words on the screen and you're like, <laughs> I'm singing, but that's not, that's not me. Let's look at this morning, for example. I'll praise you in the valley, praise you in the mountain, praise you when I'm sure, praise you when I'm doubting. I praise you when I feel it, I praise you when I don't. I praise you because I know you're still in control. 100% true in your life? Anyone? Yeah. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness fails, it won't prevail. Because the God I serve knows only how to triumph. My God will never fail. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war He wages, He will win. I'm not backing down from any giant. I know how this story ends. Now, I know we all believe those words theologically in our heads. How many of you are brave enough to admit that when you're stressing out and afraid and anxious, um, you aren't sure that those words are true? Anyone? Yeah. You're like, I, he might fail this time. I think he might fail this time. Yeah. A lot of us probably stand right here on a Sunday morning singing words while struggling to believe they're true. We want to believe they're true, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't believe they're true. Come fall on us. We fall on you. A thankful heart will be our rhythm. Come fall on us. We fall on you. A thankful heart will be our song. We can sing those words declaring with our voice that gratitude is going to be the rhythm of our day. That I'm going to see red cars everywhere all the while focusing on the bad stuff in the world and in my life. 
singing words. We sing words we have no intention of living out on Monday morning. I love the fourth song we sang. Is, uh, and Josiah honestly had no idea what this message was going to be about when he chose that song, which is cool. Um, but I honestly believe that, that when everything goes wrong, uh, as it does in the verse of that song, um, sometimes the only way through it is a hallelujah. Sometimes the only way through it is, is praise. Singing words that aren't true, but you desperately want them to be true. Like David singing, the one thing I've asked of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's petitions and meditating in His temple. Come on. There's no way that's the only thing you've ever asked of God. And that's what your heart wants more than anything else in the world. Maybe at times, but you know we all get those things like, God, come on, come through for me. We know we've sought more than that. And yet we sing those words. In fact, those words for David, he wrote them before there was a temple. So he's singing them prophetically. There will be a temple one day and there's nothing I want more than to be able to stand there. And the words were so real to him that he said, I've sought nothing from God other than be in that temple. When we see seeing, seeing words that, are, are, that aren't true about us and, and our devotion and our heart, but we wish they were, it becomes an act of faith. It's an act of vision, of seeing the person we want to be. Seeing the person we feel God is calling us to be. And you, you, you see what you look for. It's even more powerful when you sing true words that your heart just doesn't believe at the moment. When we sing, God, you will win the victory and my God will never fail. Our hearts don't always believe that. But when we choose to sing words, whether our hearts believe it or not, we're choosing what we're going to look for. It's prophecy. We're saying, I will see your goodness. So we've already established that you only see red cars if you're looking for red cars. How do you think that applies to God's presence? A.W. Tozer used to say that God's presence never changes. The only thing that changes is our awareness of it. I don't know if you've ever read the short little book, Practicing the Presence of God. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. In this book, Brother Lawrence made a decision to try and live in the awareness of God's presence every minute of his day. He decided he wanted to try to be mindful of the fact that God was in the room with him every moment of every day. He didn't just sit and meditate on God. He was a dishwasher and a shoe mender at the monastery he lived in. And he worked in the garden. And so he would try to find God while doing dishes and mending shoes and and going about his normal day. And the book is basically just him journaling through the process. And when he would lose track, he would go back to God and apologize and say, I I don't know that I'll ever do better without your grace. And and so he would go back to trying to focus on God again. He didn't beat himself up over it. He just went back to trying to find God in the moment. And none of that is what makes the book cool. What makes the book amazing is, is his like inspiring and humbling and beautiful way that he speaks of the presence of God. And it's, it's like, it's like makes you ache for that. And he talks so beautifully about the rich presence of God as he's doing dishes. And it's just this overwhelming, like, sweetness of God's glory. And when you read the book, it like, it like makes your heart want that so bad. You can't read it without like envying his experience. 
And here's the deal. There's nothing special about Brother Lawrence. He didn't know more than anybody else. Uh, he didn't have all the time in the world to commit to study and meditation. He, he didn't have a, amazing YouTube worship at his fingertip anytime he wanted it. The only thing Brother Lawrence did was decide to look. And you see what you look for. He was a seer. Now, I know there's a, a type of prophecy that there is a direct communication from God designed to serve as a message about something God's going to do. But I also think there's a major part um, of being a seer that's just opening your eyes. It's choosing what you will see by choosing what you're going to look for. If we wake up in the morning and we decide to look for the goodness of God, then we're far more likely to actually see the goodness of God all around us. In fact, uh, you want to know the most dangerous thing about doubt? And I'm not against doubt. If you, if you know me, you know I think doubt is natural. It's a central part. Um, and the only smart thing to do with our doubt is to be honest with them and bring them to God and our people and, uh, and, and be honest with the fact that we're struggling. I'm not against doubt. But the danger in doubt isn't that you're going to make God angry or, or uh, and it isn't that God can't move if you doubt um, it isn't that doubt is the opposite of faith. I don't believe that at all. The only real danger in doubt is that it tends to make you look for the wrong stuff. In our doubt, we can, we can go hunting for any shred of evidence um, that means God's not real. And, and, and we get stuck in this place where that's what we're looking for. And it's not that, that we're going to find a ton of that. It's that we're going to miss all this other stuff because we're not looking for it. We miss all the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God because we're so busy hunting for every little piece of evidence to reinforce our doubt. So we own our doubt. We're honest with it so we can process it and move through it. Not so we can stop and wallow there and miss everything beautiful that comes to us. The sooner we start looking in faith for the presence of God, the goodness of God, the sooner we start to see it. But what if we came to worship on Sunday morning and decided we're going to sing true words? We're going to, with all our heart, look for the presence of God. Declare that God is great. That there's nothing we want more in our hearts than to see Him lifted high. If we did that week after week after week, whether or not we actually felt it on Sunday, what effect might that have on our souls in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. I love that this worship leader who wrote music for the people of God was, was more than an entertainer. He was more than just a talented musician or an organized leader. He was a man who looked for God every day and went down in history as a seer. So how do we respond to this? My freshman year in college when I was making this list of the perfect woman, the powerful thing was um, that was happening was it was changing my comparison. See, I was, I was looking for someone to date and I tended to compare them to the, to the idea of being alone. Like, I can date this person or be alone. Like, that, that was my comparison. That's a pretty low bar, really. Like... There's an awful lot of people that look good compared to being lonely. But the second I had a list in my head, an unrealistic, lofty, and honestly arrogant list to think that I deserve that in any way, like let's make sure, 
But the second I held a list, my perspective, my comparison changed. Because now I'm not comparing this person, this perspective person to loneliness. I'm comparing them to this list. Do they come, do they, do they meet this standard that I knew was good for me? This is what I want. This is what I need to, to succeed in this world. Well, when we worship, something in our perspective changes. We don't just sing about who we are and where we are. We sing about who we want to be and who with God's help we will be. We sing about the God we, we know to be true even if our hearts are struggling to believe that. And all that changes our perspective. Every once in a while before worship, I, I read an Asaph psalm. It's one of my favorite um, passages. It says, look at these wicked people. Everyone in life... Uh, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. That I keep my heart pure for nothing. That I keep myself innocent for no reason. I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your own people. So I, I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, oh God. And finally understood the destiny of the wicked. I love that perspective change. Asaph's life wasn't much different than ours. He watched the news and saw the same junk we see. He scrolled social media and got discouraged. He read stats and saw what they're teaching our kids in schools and feared for the future. And by Saturday night, he was asking himself all kinds of questions and wrestling with all kinds of doubts. And then he would come to church and he would sing truth. And while singing, his vision would change. He would see something he couldn't see before. He no longer compared the lives of the wicked to his life. He compared the, the pitiful and pitiable state of the wicked to God's glory. Those poor saps. And that changed his comparison which changed everything. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is, is to call us all to be seers. I challenge you for one week to wake up in the morning and decide that you're going to find 10, 20, 50 things that are beautiful. Things that you can be grateful for. Things that are amazing gifts from God. Try looking for goodness for one week and see what happens. Then come back next week and worship, ready to worship the goodness of God. So as we gather around the table and sing about the goodness of God, get out your phone, set a reminder, text somebody that will hold you accountable. And let's be seers of God's goodness for one week and see what it changes.